0: Praise God that those apostles obeyed the word of God rather than the word of men. And that his name, the name of Jesus, has spread all across the world and is still spreading all across the world for the glory of Christ. This morning our topic, our theme is an amazing one. There are so many different ways that we could approach this topic in this uh, focus of Christ alone, solus Christus, really as we're speaking of this, there's there's two dynamics that we're going to be understanding today of the uniqueness of our Savior Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of our Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember, or maybe some of you still own one of these children's toys. Uh, It's a small sphere with a lot of different shapes carved into it. And usually one side is red and one side is blue. And on the inside, when you first buy it, there's these little yellow plastic spheres and shapes as well inside. And on the end, there's these yellow handles. You can pull apart and twist and open it up and shake the shapes out. You guys know what I'm talking about? I was going to look down in the nursery and see if we had one. If we don't, we need to buy one because this is like an essential toy for kids, right? It's an amazing little, little toy though, right? Because it is educational for our, for our kids. And what is it teaching There's two primary sort of ideas that this toy is teaching to our children as they play with it. One is that there are distinct shapes, right? So they learn to discern there's distinctions between different objects. And then they also learn that in those distinctions, there's also a a proper fit of objects, There are certain ones that fit in certain holes in that sphere, and there are certain ones that don't, because they just don't fit. They identify these distinctions, they identify the correspondence between the shapes and the holes, and they begin to learn. And the amazing thing is that as a child, or even as an adult, I confess, this can be worth hours of fun. And parents, you love toys like this because you can put the shapes in and you teach them and then like kind of laugh at them. No, the triangle cannot go in the star. And finally they get it. And then you open it up and shake the shapes out again and they continue to play with it. And again, adults do as well. Teenagers, every once in a while I see this show up at a teen event as well. But here's the concept, right? In life, we apply these principles in everyday things. We make distinctions. We discern the difference between objects, something that is one thing and something that is not it. And we also make distinctions between things that are complementary or things that are fitting together. And as we come to this topic, we, we see in the doctrine of Christ alone, solus Christus, we are essentially speaking of these, these two things. Jesus is distinct and unique He is the unique Savior of the world. And secondly, Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for salvation. Nothing else will fit. Nothing else will meet the need of humanity. Nothing else will make up the gap, so to speak, for our sinfulness and our need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is the unique Savior, and He's the only one in His life, death, and resurrection that will meet that need for all humanity. Jesus is the unique God-man. We've been singing about it already this morning. No one else is shaped like him. This is the incarnation. This is the mystery and the miracle of the incarnation. In fact, one of the Reformers said this, that that the mystery or the the idea of Christianity is rooted in this one miracle. Actually, I think that was Lewis. This one miracle, the miracle of the incarnation. John Huss. Wrote this, rejoice that the immortal God is born and that mortal men may live in eternity. Rejoice that the immortal God is born into humanity so that mortal men may live in eternity. Luther wrote this, the mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond all human understanding. Jesus Christ is our unique and distinct Savior. Savior of the world. Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for salvation. Nothing else, no one else, and no other work is needed. Man, do we believe that? Jesus Christ, in His life and death and resurrection, is sufficient for our salvation. No one else, no other work is needed. Christ is enough. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, wrote this about Christ and his work. Christ took our flesh upon him so that he might take our sins upon him. We heard a sermon on that recently from 2 Corinthians 5:21, and that is the essence of that text. Christ took on flesh and this was the only way, the only means by which he could pay the penalty for our sin and take our sinful guilt upon him and pay the price. See, Christ's life, death, and resurrection is sufficient for us. But what about this doctrine of Christ alone? One prominent contemporary theologian summarizes the doctrine of Christ alone this way. Listen as I read this text, as I read this quote. Solus Christus expresses the biblical conviction that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. And that therefore there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12, which we just read. Christ's identity is absolutely exclusive and His work entirely sufficient. Now listen to this. We have no need then, For any other prophet to provide us with a new revelation. There are millions of people in this world who reject that statement. Because they bow their knee to another prophet. We have no need then for another prophet to provide us with new revelation. We have no need of any other priest to mediate between us and God. Again, millions of people reject this statement. Or we have no need of any other king to rule Christ's church. Christ alone stands at the center of God's eternal purposes. Christ alone is the object of our saving faith. And therefore Christ alone must stand at the very center of our theology. Solus Christus is the linchpin of Reformation theology and the center of the other four principles of the solas of the Reformation. Without Christ, we have nothing. And with Christ, we have everything. See, Christ alone in his uniqueness and in his sufficiency must stand at the center of our theology as a church and as individuals. As we read that portion of Acts 4 earlier, I want to come back to this. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Acts 4 again. We're not going to expound this text in its entirety. But I just want to highlight a few principles that emerge from Acts 4. If we truly believe in this uniqueness of Christ alone, and we truly are basing our lives on it and living out the reality of Christ is sufficient for us, then this text actually describes what that's going to look like for us a little bit. Look at this with me first in Acts 4.2. Acts 4.2. There are these people, Pharisees, rulers of the city, Jewish leaders. What does Luke say about them? They were greatly disturbed, or the ESV I think says annoyed, They were greatly disturbed and annoyed. Why? Because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, if we really believe and live our lives as individuals and as this church on the foundation of Christ alone, and we preach the the power of the resurrection of Christ alone to change lives, then, then we should not be surprised When we preach this, proclaim it, and live our lives based on this reality, we should not be surprised when people who don't believe it are disturbed by us. And maybe even annoyed by us. Have you experienced this at all in our culture? Oh, you're one of those Christians. You're so narrow-minded. You think Christ alone is everything. Well, yes, actually, I do. That is so annoying. You shared the gospel with somebody. You talk about the Jesus of the Bible, the the Jesus, the historical Jesus and what he came and did and, and the reality of his life, death and resurrection. You talk about him as my God and my Savior. Have you had somebody say, why do you keep saying my God and my Savior? There are many roads to God. No, no. There's only one. There's only one way of salvation. So when we talk about the exclusivity and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and we proclaim his name like the apostles did, that there's life and hope in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead alone, don't be surprised when people are disturbed by you and annoyed by you because you're proclaiming the sufficiency and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. See, there's, there's always a tendency in our culture right, to sort of soften the edges of this Christ-alone doctrine. And there's always a tendency even in the church to soften this, especially on the area of sufficiency. In fact, C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, um, Screwtape Letters. I've been reading that with several men in the church, and if you're not familiar with the book, essentially, Lewis, it's a fictional tale of, a demon who's writing letters to a younger demon trying to teach him how to tempt and dissuade Christians of their beliefs in Christ and draw them away or to prevent them from ever believing in Christ in the first place. So Lewis writes this from a demon's perspective tempting one of these Christians. He says, there's this thing called Christianity and, you know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing. Christianity and psychic research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and even spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror or hatred of the same old thing. And here I think what Lewis is getting at is the temptation, the tendency in the church for even us to be drawn away from what we consider a boring doctrine, the same old thing of Christ alone. We're tempted to do this. It might be Christianity and chocolate. Christianity and my successful career. Christianity and fill in the blank. Do you sense in yourself ever a tendency to do this, the Christ and? I need something else for my salvation or for my sanctification, for my joy, for my hope. I need something more than simply Christ. We tend to be bored with Christ. Christ. If we don't think much on Him, if we don't value Him, if we don't meditate on the glories of who Christ is, and we tend to be bored, and when you tend to be, when you sense that boredom creeping in of your thoughts and your meditation and your worship of Christ, that's a warning sign. Ask God to stir up affection for you again and, and help to show you once again that Christ is sufficient for you in every aspect of your life. As a church, there's a temptation all around us as Modern churches to become more attractive and more successful and more up to date. And what are those definitions based upon? They're based upon something other than Christ and his word. So brothers and sisters of the church, we want this to inform everything we do as a church family. Christ is unique as our savior. He's the only savior. Technique's not our savior. Music's not our savior. Certain curriculum's not our savior. What we wear is not our Savior, what we look like. Christ alone is our Savior. He's unique and He's sufficient. So we believe that. Uh, Keep going down in Acts 4, verses 10 through 12. Let me read this for us again. Acts 4, 10 through 12. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. (laughs) It's by this name, the name of Jesus, the one that you just killed. But God raised up. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So, brothers and sisters, in this one, if we really believe and live our lives as individuals in a church, if we really believe this doctrine of Christ alone, then the content of our conversation and the content of our lives, the content of our meditation, the foundation of all our theology and the basis for how we live our life is going to be simply rooted and built upon Christ alone. So here's the question. Is out of your mouth, out of your mind, are your conversations shaped and formed by this reality, Christ alone is unique and sufficient for you and for our church? Acts 4, verse 18 to 20, look at this with me. So they call them again, and they command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Here we see described for us, this is our proper response to Christ alone. Here's our proper response to God's grace in our lives. If we really believe in Christ alone as individuals in a church family, then here's our proper response. We cannot help but speak of Christ. If we really believe that He is the unique Savior of the world, if we really believe that He is sufficient in His life, death, death, and resurrection, then we will be compelled to speak. One of our core values. One of our essentials here is called mission. And we've defined that simply by stating this. We want to proclaim Christ from our neighborhoods to the nations. See, the doctrine of Christ alone is actually the kindling for us as a church to be engaged in missions and to send missionaries and support missionaries and to be active in evangelism in our own lives. So I hope you're starting to feel the tension, right? We say we love Christ alone. We sing in Christ alone. And our hearts swell up on Sunday morning and we have an emotional high singing this song and it's great. But here's where the rubber meets the road. When we walk out those doors, does this doctrine affect us once we leave this building? Do we really believe that Christ is enough for us? That Christ is a unique Savior that this world needs? Do we really believe it? And if so, are we living it? Are we living it? For the rest of our time this morning, what I want to do is just walk through several different aspects of this unique, exclusive identity of our Savior. And I want some of the Reformers to speak to us. Specifically this morning, I want Calvin to speak to us. If you've never read any of his commentaries or books, I would encourage you to do so because he writes, especially in his commentaries, in such a pastoral way, just reading through them. Some of the language you might have to wrestle through, but, but his tone and his, and his perspective as he's writing, he's writing for his people with the pastor's heart. But first, let's look at the text. First, I want us to consider the exclusive identity of Jesus Christ, that he is the incarnate Son of God. He is the God-man. We've mentioned that already. But as the God-man... He alone fulfills God's righteousness. So look with me at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to ask you to turn back and forth to several texts this morning, so just bear with me on this. And so I want you to hear some of the texts and read some of the texts that influenced the Reformers and that still influence us today. In Isaiah 53... Verses 4 through 6. And if you were here at the wedding yesterday, this is one of the texts that Sam and Emily asked for me to challenge them from. Here's what the prophet writes. Surely he, that is Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Notice that. Yet we esteemed him. We thought this about him. All those that were there crucifying Christ thought this about him. All the Jews thought this about him. That he was being stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by God for something he had done. But he was innocent. And he was fully righteous. Verse 5. But he, this innocent one, was pierced for our transgressions. This is why he was crucified. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Listen to this commentary by Calvin. In the second clause, he shows how great was the ingratitude and wickedness of the people who did not know why Christ was so severely afflicted, but they imagined that God smote him on account of his own sins, though they knew that he was perfectly innocent, and his innocence was attested even by his judge. And who is the judge of Jesus? His own father as well as Pilate in the narrative, right? I find nothing. I find no guilt for this man. Calvin continues and writes, Here the prophet Isaiah draws a contrast between us and Christ. For in us, nothing can be found but destruction and death. Listen, in Christ alone, in Christ alone is life and salvation. He alone brought medicine to us. And he even procures health by his weakness and life by his death. For he alone hath pacified the Father. He alone hath reconciled us to him. He alone. He alone. Now, listen to this pastoral heart come out. Here we might bring forward many things about the blessed consequences of Christ's sufferings for us. But let everyone therefore draw consolation from this passage and let him apply the blessed results of this doctrine to his own use. For these words are spoken to all in general and to individuals in particular. What is Calvin getting at here? And Calvin's getting at this point, that in general, as Christ's people, we know when we have confidence that our sin, is, as this big principle of sin that has condemned us and that we're under the wrath of God, has been removed, and the judgment of, of God against us has been satisfied in Christ. In general, we know that's true for all believers of all time, but for each of us as individuals in particular, there's a sense of healing and comfort that all of us need to apply from this text. If you read it, he was pierced for my transgressions. Which ones are those? As you think in your mind, which transgressions was Christ pierced for for you? He was crushed for my iniquities. Which ones are those? Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that I deserved so that I might have peace with God and with his wounds, I am being healed. I think a lot of us need the comfort, personal comfort and satisfaction And joy that we can receive from realizing that these words, yes in general, are given to us. But they're given to you specifically this morning as well. Second thing I want you to see is from Romans 5. Flip to the New Testament, Romans 5. This Son of God, this incarnate One, reconciles God with humanity. So first... This incarnate Son of God fulfilled God's righteousness. He was totally innocent, and he bore God's wrath for us. And now this incarnate Son of God, as a result of that, reconciles God with humanity. Romans 5, verses 10 through 11. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Steve read this quote from Luther at the beginning. I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. Romans 5 captures that for us. Look at what Christ has done. We were once enemies, but now we've been reconciled because of the work of Christ, through Christ, to God. The gospel tells me, look at what Christ has done for me. Colossians one, Colossians one, verses nineteen through twenty. Paul writes this, this continuing theme of reconciliation. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile, reconcile to Himself all things, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, and he's making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what Calvin writes about this text. This also is a magnificent commendation of Christ, that we cannot be joined to God otherwise than through him. We cannot be joined to God other than through Christ. In the first place, let us consider that our happiness consists in our cleaving to God or holding on to him. And that on the other hand, there is nothing more miserable than to be alienated from him. He declares accordingly that we are blessed through Christ alone. Inasmuch as he is the bond of our connection with God. And on the other hand, that apart from him, we are most miserable because we are shut out from God. Let us, however, bear in mind that what he ascribes to Christ belongs peculiarly to him, that no portion of this praise may be transferred to another. You catch it? In Christ alone, we are blessed in God. In Christ alone, we are connected to God. In Christ alone, we are reconciled. And and there is no praise or boasting that should go anywhere else or to anyone else other than Christ alone. Calvin continues, the blood of the cross therefore means the blood of the sacrifice which was offered upon the cross for appeasing the anger of God and adding by him, he did not mean to express anything new, but to express more distinctly what he had previously stated and to impress it still more deeply on their minds. Paul wants us to see more clearly This is all about Christ, his work, his sacrifice, his shed blood on the cross. It is Christ alone who is the author of reconciliation as to exclude all other means. For there is no other, there is no other that is that has been crucified for us, Calvin says. See, there is. There's no one else to stand in our place. There's no one else unique enough to fit that gap. There's no one else who can sufficiently pay the penalty of our sin except the unique Savior, incarnate Son of God who lived a perfect sinless life and was our perfect sacrifice who could stand in our stead as our substitute and bring us back to God. Third thing I want you to see about the uniqueness of Jesus is that as the incarnate Son of God, He alone establishes God's saving rule on this world. Stay in Colossians chapter 1 if you're there. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Here's what Paul writes. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are children of darkness by nature. We are sinful by nature. We are destined to the judgment of God by nature. And here is the work of Christ. So Calvin writes this, in the first place, we ourselves are called darkness And afterwards the whole world and Satan and the prince of darkness under whose tyranny we are held captive until we're set free by Christ's hand. From this you may gather that the whole world with all its pretended wisdom and righteousness is regarded as nothing but darkness in the sight of God. Because apart from the kingdom of Christ there is no light. Do we believe that again? That this world and the Humanity around us, without Christ, they have no light. This is one reason why the Reformers liked another Latin phrase that translated, after the darkness, light. Here's where they saw this, in Christ. Christ was moving us. In Christ alone, he was transferring us from the kingdom of Satan and darkness into the kingdom of light and life. Paul also ascribes this to the grace of God, Calvin continues, so that no one may imagine that he can can attain so great a blessing by his own efforts. We can't do this. We can't transfer ourselves from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. As then our deliverance from the slavery of sin and death is the work of God, so also our passing into the kingdom of Christ. So he calls the son of his love. And all who are in him are beloved by God the Father. Because it is in him alone that his soul takes pleasure, as we read in Matthew 17:5, and in whom all others are beloved. So we must hold it at a settled point that we are not acceptable to God otherwise than through Christ. We are not acceptable to God except through Christ. But here's our hope. In Christ, because he is beloved of the Father, all of us who are gathered together in Christ are loved of the Father and are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and we have life. So here's the question. Why was it necessary for God to become man? This is one of the catechism questions. Why was it necessary for God to become man? And here's the answer that all of these texts and the reformers brought together for us. That in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment of human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weakness. And that leads us to our final section that I want to bring to us today. Christ, in his incarnation, is for us our prophet. Priest and King. He's our prophet. John six, sixty six to sixty nine. After Jesus fed the five thousand, there's this whole discourse about him being the bread of life, and many of the disciples walk away because they say, Man, this is this is tough. Jesus just told us that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And many turned away because they could not understand what Jesus was communicating. So in John six sixty six, here's what John writes. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? Where else? What other prophet are we going to look to? What other words are we going to look to for life? Jesus' answer and Peter's answer to Christ is this, that outside of him, outside of Jesus, there is only death and destruction. But in Christ, and through his words, there's life. Secondly, if Jesus is our prophet, Jesus is also our priest. Hebrews 2.17, the writer writes for us, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Did you hear that? Christ was made like his brothers in every aspect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He's our prophet, but he's our priest. He has entered, in, he entered into the incarnation of the flesh to suffer with us, to face temptation, to identify with us, and to be victorious for us. Whenever evil and whatever temptation comes upon you, know this, find comfort in this, that your Savior, the unique Savior, Jesus Christ, identifies with you and will sustain you. For he is your priest and he's faithful. And finally, Jesus as our King. In John 20, verses 27 to 28, this familiar text, after the resurrection, doubting Thomas did not believe that the risen savior appeared to the other disciples. And so in John 20, Jesus appears again and Jesus appears to Thomas specifically and invites him to come touch the wounds, examine, see for yourself. And here's Thomas's response. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe in verse 28, Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. God, See, Jesus is our king. Let me give you one final quote from Calvin here. Thomas awakes at length, though late, and as persons who have been mentally deranged commonly do when they come to themselves, he exclaims in astonishment, My Lord and my God. Catch a little bit of Calvin's humor there. For the abruptness of the language has great vehemence, nor can it be doubted that shame compelled him to break out into this expression. In order to condemn his own stupidity, besides, so sudden an explanation shows that faith was not wholly extinguished in him, though it had been choked for in the side or in the hands of Christ, he does not handle Christ's divinity, but from those signs he infers much more than what they exhibited. See, Thomas's faith was, came about after forgetfulness and deep sleep, and he suddenly comes to himself. This shows, therefore, the truth of what I said a little a little ago, that the faith which appeared to be destroyed was that as it were concealed and simply buried in his heart. The same thing happens sometimes with many persons, for they grow wanton for a time. And if they had cast off all fear of God, so that there appears to be no longer any faith in them. But as soon as God has chastised them with a rod, the rebellion of their flesh is subdued and they return to their right senses. It is certain that disease would not of itself be sufficient to teach piety, and hence we infer that when the obstructions have been removed, the good seed which has been concealed and crushed springs up. What a wonderfully comforting pastoral charge to his people from, uh, from uh, to Calvin's people as he helps them rehearse and understand the gospel that sometimes we fall into states of what he calls insanity. And we don't live by faith in our Savior. We don't submit our lives to Jesus as our King. But thankfully, the Word of God is sufficient and Christ is sufficient so that when He comes and He chastises and calls us back to faith and repentance and to believe and and get up in our Christian lives and go on, that His faithfulness is still there and His work is still going to happen. Because Jesus is sufficient and His Word is sufficient Therefore, God's work will never fail. I intended to spend more time on my conclusion, but we're out of time. So let me just say this. What are the current threats and our current need as a church family as it relates to Christ alone? First of all, here's the threat. Here's the question that rests among us that we have to daily, I think daily work through. Is Jesus really enough for you? Is Jesus really enough for you? Or do you find yourself looking for something else? Whatever the other else might be. Secondly, for our world, is Jesus really the only way? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're questioning that. Is Jesus really the only way? These texts have pointed us to the reality that yes, He is the only way. And outside of Christ, there is no life. There is no hope. There is no joy. So we're going to sing in a minute, all I have is Christ. And then finally, the third is, here's our current need. If we consider the doctrine of Christ alone, here's our current need for us to live it out and apply it. Here's the need. The need is for us to be active in missions. Not just overseas. We need that. There's unreached people groups, people that have not heard the gospel, people that don't have access to the reality of the truths of the scriptures, people that have never heard of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice and his life and death and resurrection. They've never heard of that. Yes, we need to reach them. As a church, we need to be focused on that. But here, first and foremost, are you active in missions? How are you proclaiming Jesus to your neighbors? That's where it starts. That's where it starts. But I'll say this if you're not first convinced that Jesus is enough for you, it's going to be very difficult for you to tell somebody else that Jesus will be enough for them. Let's pray.